continuing uh, our second in a series on worship, because we are now in the tabernacle section. How are we going to begin this? Well, the, the great topic today is what not to wear to church. So this is a very powerful theological topic, and I'm looking out here and seeing that many, many, many of you have failed. Um, so I thought maybe, you know, to encourage you, there's a show out there called What Not to Wear, a reality TV show that some of y'all could use some help in that area. I mean, certainly you want to take your fashion cues from me because I am the, yeah, no, I'm not. Um, that is a running joke in our house. I think I have like three pairs of clothes in my whole closet and I just recycle them Every other day, maybe every other week. Um, well, here's what not to wear. It's premiered what, 2003? Do you remember that show? Just watch that show. I mean, guys, I know you've seen the show. You can't help it. You walk in, your wife's watching it, your daughters are watching it, and then you get in hooked somehow. <laughs> I don't know how. I never got hooked, though. Never. Um, it starts with a fashion victim. In other words, someone who's a horrible dresser. And a family member or a... Or a uh, I don't know, a spouse or a friend or a co-worker would nominate them to the show as a fashionable victim that needs help. And if they get selected, what will happen is that for two weeks, the crew of What Not to Wear will stalk this person without them knowing and film them. And then the co-hosts, Stacy and Clinton, they'll critique them on camera, you know, while they're walking and what they're wearing and they're evaluating and critiquing them and adding their insights into what fashion is. And they, you might hear them say some things like this uh, about their clothing challenges. Uh, that's unfashionable. Uh, yes, Stacy, that is very out of date. Um, that's so unflattering. That's frumpy, right? Uh, that's fully inappropriate. And there are no words for that. Nope, there are no words. Uh, the high point of it all comes when the camera actually uh, gets access without this person knowing into their closet. And now before the whole world, everyone knows they're a fashion loser. That they don't know how to dress, right? At the end of that, uh, they will approach, it's almost like an intervention. They'll have the surprise visit from the crew, from the co-hosts, from those that nominated them. And it's like this intervention. Uh, but before they get all worked up, they give them this... Option, we'll give you $5,000 so you can get a new wardrobe. Not bad, right? Here are the conditions. You got to give us your old wardrobe, which usually goes in the trash. Uh, and the other condition is you have to play by our rules, the co-host would say. In other words, we're going to tell you what not to wear. And we're going to tell you what to wear. And little they know, if the person accepts this, they're going to spend a week getting a complete makeover. I mean, like, they are going to change and transform right before our eyes. In fact, they're going to get their makeup done. They're going to get their hair done. They're going to get their clothes done. They're even going to start thinking differently about how they view themselves. And so then the high part, the climax of the show, at the end of the show, is at the end of the week, uh, they have this party in the participant's hometown, and it's filled with all their family and friends. And everyone's buzzing around waiting. And then, and then the person walks out. And it's absolutely, I've never seen it, but it's absolutely stunning. <laughs> it's so bad. Why can I not be confident enough to say, yes, I watched that show. <laughs> Slim, I watched that show. And this new person steps out. Completely new person. I mean, it's, it's stunning. I'm like, wait, 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 is that really her? It's her. And everybody is just 
you know, parents and friends or husbands are just like, wow, what happened? Here's what's what's supposed to happen in Exodus 28 and 29. A complete makeover. You and me. Completely made over. So much so that it's not just rearranging the stuff on the outside, which wouldn't be bad for a lot of us, right? But it's actually rearranging the stuff on the inside in such a way Because some of you are thinking, and I know this, I don't want a makeover. I know what kind of makeover you people in the church want. And I'm not really interested in that kind of religious makeover. So let let me speak to that just for a second. Neither are we. And neither is God. The makeover that God is after is actually, we could say it this way, is that you finally become you. You become who you were meant to be. You become a human being. And it's the most incredible thing that could ever happen to us. You actually settle in to you and not to what you think of you, not to what others think of you, you. And you're a real person. And you actually are fun to be around. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read several passages here. Just hang in there. I know that uh, this is a tough section to how to even go through. I mean, it's a lot of stuff that seems archaic and ancient. It doesn't feel like it relates to us, but it does. So hang in there as we read it. Let's stand for the hearing of God's word. This morning's reading is from uh, Exodus 28, 1 through 5, 36 through 38, chapter 29, 1 through 9, 21, 37, 38, and 42 through 46. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. Eliezer and Ithmar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, your glory and for, be- for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make: a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, 
and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron skillfully, put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and, the, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. And his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks Denton. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page, and we thank you that you are fully, passionately committed to that. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the inspiration, the writer of the scriptures, and you're now the illuminator, you're now the empowerer. Uh, you now open eyes and open hearts. Uh, you do for us what we cannot do, and we ask that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This is what we know so far about this section. This is called the tabernacle section. This is 16 long chapters at the end of Exodus that runs from chapters 25 through 40. Here's the first thing we need to know that we all know so far as based on last week. Everyone worships. Everyone is a worshiper. So worship is inescapable. It's actually written into the very fabric in the DNA of being a human being and an image bearer. There's no one who's not a worshiper. There's no one who does not worship. You can't help but do it because that's primarily our identity. We are worshipers. This means it's the soul's DNA. It's what the soul does. So this is very, very important. Sin doesn't end our worship. Sin begins our worship of anything. Second thing, what's the big deal about the tabernacle? Here, what is the big deal? What's the big deal about a worship site in the middle of the desert? What's the big deal about going to church? The answer is this. The tabernacle is a new Eden. The tabernacle is an island of paradise in a sea of sin. The tabernacle is a microcosm of the way the world is supposed to be. 
It's the seventh day. It's the Sabbath rest. It's a piece of heaven on earth. It's an act of recreation. In other words, at the tabernacle, God says, let there be light. Amidst the chaos of sin and amidst the ruins of sin, at the tabernacle, God shows up. At the tabernacle, God comes down. At the tabernacle, God shows up to love you and to grace you. So in other words, the tabernacle changes everything. Nothing's the same because of the tabernacle. Today we go inside the tabernacle. Today we follow the only human beings that are allowed to go into the tabernacle. We're going to follow Aaron and his sons. And they start being called priests here. Later we're going to learn about the Levites. And what's going to be fascinating about the Levites is we're going to learn in those three missing chapters, remember, in this whole 16 chapters on worship, three missing chapters. In those three missing chapters, there's only two heroic people, Moses and the Levites. The most unrealistic, unexpected turn of events is that Levites would do something good. That's why they become the priests. Isn't that fascinating? And it happens there in those three chapters. We'll get to it. But not even the great Moses is allowed inside the tabernacle. Did you catch that? The priests are, but not Moses. The high priest especially. In fact, at the end of Exodus, it kind of ends like a bummer for Moses. If you're reading this, you're like, I'd be like, wait a minute, what did I just do? Didn't I, wasn't I the instrument that led everybody out of Egypt? Exodus 40, 35, the very end of Exodus, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There it is. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There's the power of the tabernacle. So the question before us today is, why is that so important? Why is that significant? How does that land in our life? In other words, what's, what power in the tabernacle has anything to do with us? I mean, are we just going to talk about the elements and the irons and all the things that are part of the tabernacle and, you know, get our charts and things up here? What is the power of the tabernacle? How does the message, the theology of the tabernacle move us, change us, land in our lives? What's the big deal for you and me? Uh, that's what we're going to do for the remaining of our time. You ready to get started? Okay, here we go. What's the first thing anyone does when they enter the tabernacle? What's the first impact of the power of the tabernacle on anyone when they enter it? Do you know what it is? I mean, think about it. What's the first thing they do? What's the first thing that happens? Here it is. Tremble. Causes you to tremble. But it's not uh, something you have to think about. It's not like, you know, I really should tremble. I need to tremble right now. And it's not something that you work up. You sit there and say, gosh, tremble, tremble. Let's get the trembling going. Let's get the music to get the trembling going. Trembling just happens. Trembling happens when holiness comes close. It is the normal, natural appropriate human response when holiness draws near. Everything about the tabernacle is not just about holiness, but it's about the intensification of holiness. You know what that means? 
It means we could call it this way. There are increasing gradations or levels or potency of holiness in the tabernacle. We could say it like this. As you start moving closer to the Holy of Holies, you're starting to pass through greater potencies and levels and degrees and gradations of holiness. Holiness gets more concentrated. Holiness gets more potent. In fact, when you get to the Holy of Holies, you are at, just as its name suggests, the holiest place on the planet. It is the most intense holiness located in one place on earth ever. It says the highest potency of holiness in the Holy of Holies, especially at the Ark of the Covenant, because this is where God localizes his presence on earth. This is where impossible holiness dwells and localizes and takes up residence in a physical place. Only the high priest can go in there. And he can only go in there one time a year. I want you to think of a nuclear reactor. Why? Because you get, the closer you get to the core of the nuclear reactor, the more potent the radiation becomes. The closer you start moving through the tabernacle to the Holy of Holies, the greater the potency, the greater the radiation, the greater the power, the greater the intensity of holiness. So it's kind of like this. When God dwells in the Holy of Holies, specifically above the ark, and we'll get to that some other time, you have the most potent power of holiness on the planet dwelling there. And then there are these gradations or circles or spheres or like a ground zero from ground zero. There's these gradations or circles of holiness that spread out. Kind of goes like this. You've got the Holy of Holies, Then the next circle out is what? The holy place. That's lesser radiation, lesser concentration of holiness. And then you go from the holy place to the outer court, right? And then from the outer court, where do you go? You're now outside the tabernacle. But outside the tabernacle, you have the camp of of, uh, Levites surrounding it. They're encamped around it. And then outside the Levites, you have the rest of Israel. Lesser potency. And then outside the camp itself, outside Israel's camp, are the Gentiles and the unclean Israelites, the most unholy place on the planet. So I need to do a timeout real quick. Well, I think this is important. The metals and the uh, elements and the building materials, they get more pure and they get more precious as you go towards the Holy of Holies. Isn't that interesting? So again, as you get concentrated around holiness, things get pure. You get pure gold inside the Holy of Holies. Outside it was bronze, but things are getting more precious. So you see the gradations, right? This is why the Canaanites had to be driven out of the promised land. It was holy land. It wasn't about ethnic cleansing. It was about holiness. God chose that place to dwell And when he dwelt there and he localized his holiness, unholiness had to be driven out. Klein calls it an intrusion ethic. You know what that means? It's an intrusion of an ethic to come in this time to push out all unholiness. 
at the great day, the last day, God's holiness will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Everything will be holy. The place will be holy. The people will be holy. All unholiness will be driven out. The driving out of the Canaanites is a temporary intrusion of that ethic to come, okay? All right, I just wanted to put that in because that's a, that's a tough one to understand, isn't it? I mean, why are the Canaanites driven out? It's not ethnic cleansing. It's about holiness. All right, the power of the tabernacle is the impossible holiness of God, the potent holiness of God. God's holiness is his radical otherness, literally his difference or his separateness from all human beings, So we have this sense in which God in his holiness is so different and he's so separate and he's so other from all the rest of the created human beings. The gap is incrossable. The gap is beyond comprehension between God and his creatures. In other words, even the picture that we get in Revelation is astounding. You have the sea of glass that surrounds the throne and the sea of glass is infinite and extends forever and created creatures are on the other side of that that sea of glass. Because the holiness of God is so unapproachable, the holiness of God, the gap is uncrossable. The Bible likes to call words to describe God's holiness like he's the king of heaven. It uses words like beautiful, eternal, the Lord of all, the most high, it gives pictorial language that goes like this. It's almost like he, he puts majesty on like a robe and can discard it like a robe. He binds splendor and radiance and light like a belt because he is light and he is radiance. Theologians grasp at words. They grasp at words like transcendence. And one of my favorite, infinitely worthy. Otherness. In other words, incomparable or complex or incomprehensible. Now, God's holiness easily generates awe and wonder, does it not? I mean, think about it. When you have, when you have the, whole, the highest potency of holiness, of otherness, of extraordinariness, and it draws close to you and me, it, it overwhelms. Everywhere in the Bible, it, it overwhelms, and it's, a, it's an overwhelming wonder. It's an overwhelming awe. It's, like it's, it's, it's everything we were made for, and it completely overwhelms us with life and the design of the way things are supposed to be. We know we are supposed to be with him. We know we were made to look at him but it overwhelms. And now when you add sin to the mix, it terrorizes. For a sinner to come into the presence of the holiness of God is terrorizing. It undoes you. It's so traumatic that it breaks us down because when holiness comes in contact with sin, it exposes it and it judges it. But what's fascinating about this account, did you catch that with these guys, these priests? There's no terror with them. They're trembling. 
The terror? No. Why are they trembling? They're trembling because they know what they're like. They know who God is, and they know what they're like. Their trembling is that they know they're sinful and weak. Their trembling causes them to admit it. Their trembling is an expression that they know that they can't make themselves holy. In other words, they know they can't take their own guilt away. They know deep down in their being that they are stained and they can't get the stain off themselves. They know that their guilt can't be taken away. Their stain can't be taken away. They know that they can't remove or cleanse themselves. And the other thing they know really, really well is they know they can't help themselves. I mean, the lessons become really, really clear, right? We've been going through Exodus. They realized, ah, we can't rescue ourselves. We can't deliver ourselves. Only God can do that. So God only could deliver us out of Egypt. And then we got those six impossible places, remember? Then those were designed to teach them. We can't help ourselves. We can't deliver ourselves there. We're surrounded by enemies. What do we do? No water, no food, no water again. Terrorists now, leadership struggles. We can't deliver ourselves. They tremble because that's real. They tremble because they feel that deep in their bones. They tremble because they know they're weak. They know they're deeply flawed. The appropriate response is to tremble, right? And then remember we saw the law and they tremble because of the holiness of God revealed in the law. Now, the epicenter, ground zero, the holiness of God himself. We can't deliver ourselves. So trembling, not terror, is there because something else is there. Trust is there. Did you catch that? In other words, if there is no trust, trembling always spirals to terror. A trembling trust is not paralyzed, and a trembling trust is not passive. Here's what we mean. Uh, a trembling trust is not paralyzed because when you, when you try to deal with sin on your own, you get paralyzed. You are paralyzed because you are radically insecure. When we're having to say, I've got to clean myself and I've got to deal with my sin, I've got to figure out a way to get rid of it, a, feel like a way to atone for it, a feel, find a way to fix it, we're radically insecure. It's also we're paralyzed because when we can't forgive ourselves and we beat ourselves up, we're paralyzed. There's a a hopelessness that barges into our life because we know we can't, we just, we're beating ourselves up. We can't forgive ourselves. The failures and sins in our life are too great and so hopelessness dwells. The other thing is that when it becomes crucial for us to believe that I'm a good person, we become paralyzed. Because now we're just so desperate to prove ourselves to each other, to, to ourselves, that that drive and that desperation is a paralysis. There's not freedom there. But a, par- a trembling trust is not paralyzed, and it's also not passive. Do you get that? They go to the temple. They're not passive. They're not like running away from the temple. They're not acting like the other nations. They're trembling, but they're trusting, and the trembling trust is driving them boldly, even courageously, bravely to the temple to actually seek God, to actually pray to him, to actually go to the scriptures. They boldly do so. They don't avoid God. 
They don't avoid God. If you notice, they're boldly going. They're not passive by not admitting what they're really like. In other words, they're actually drawing and connecting to God by admitting they're weak and sinful, by acknowledging their flaws and who they are, actually asking for help, maybe from other people in their life, by crying out to God for mercy and for help. That's not passive. Man, that's bold. That's active. So the question is, well, there's one other escape, and I want to highlight this. We escape when we get passive, when we don't have trembling trust, because we start looking to escapes for other sources of control and other sources of security and other sources of identity. We start trying to find them in something or someone other than God, and that's a, that's a way of passivity of just trying to find it, trying to fix it, trying to figure it out. So where did the priests get their trembling trust? Look at Exodus 28.2. We got a couple of, couple of uh, readings here. Hang in there. But if you look at 28.2, this is phenomenal. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. I mean, you see what God is saying? I'm, I'm going to dignify you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to give you inestimable worth. I'm going to clothe you. You go to Exodus 28, 36, and 37. It says, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You see what's happening? Every time he's in there, I can imagine he's getting the concentrations of holiness. He knows he's before holy God. It's waves of overwhelming realities that are going in there. And all he has to do is just go, okay. Holy to the Lord. He's got this signet. He's got this golden plate on there. And that's what we need. He taps it. It's not found inside him. It's outside him. It's in his clothes. He can't go finding some acceptability inside himself. He can't look inside and find it. If he tries to do that, terror takes over. He gets paralyzed. Or he flees the temple in passivity. But because there is a plate outside of him, holy to the Lord. Okay. There's a, there's a boldness and a life and a living that takes place in the life of that priest. He comes to his senses. This is what God says is true of me. This is the way things were meant to be. This is what a human being is. Holy to the Lord. And you go to Exodus 29, 21. It says, then you'll take a part of the blood that's on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. In other words, God clothes them with beauty and honor and holiness. God says, I give you your worthiness. I give you what you're looking for. I give you what every human being craves. And you're only going to find it in the tabernacle. Outside the tabernacle, you're going to try to find it on your own. And you will always be insecure. And you will always be paralyzed or passive. 
You'll be wrought through with terror. But in here, you find yourself. God made them holy. He made them acceptable. He made them perfect. He gave them a success and he gave them an achievement and he gave them a performance and he gave them an approval and he gave them a validation they could never attain. If Paul was here, he'd go, see that? Do you see that? That's God justifying the ungodly. Can you see that? It's breathtaking. He actually did a recreative act. He said, let there be, and there was. He did the impossible. So in the middle of impossible holiness is this more stunning, impossible grace. And because of that, you tremble, but you trust. Now, it's more stunning than that. I mean, this, this stuff blows my mind. I don't even know how we can stand up here when we hear this stuff. You know, the high priests, they were graced with holiness. They were graced with acceptability. They were graced with righteousness. It's not something that they generated again. It was something that God said, let there be. And you can only find that in the tabernacle. You can't get it outside the tabernacle. Outside the tabernacle, you're on your own. Outside the tabernacle, you've got to make your own holiness. You've got to generate a righteousness and an acceptability. And it's a losing endeavor. You're desperately trying to plead, prove yourself. You're locked in hopelessness and insecurity. It can't happen. Inside, you get let there be. And there is, right? Now, amidst all of this, the high priests... Holiness and worthiness and acceptability, it's more stunning, is that it's also Israel's. Did you catch that? I mean, literally, the high priest represented Israel. On his shoulders, he had two pouches. He had two stones. He had a a stone for each of the tribes of Israel. Like, he had six over here and he had six over here. A stone in each pouch. On his shoulder, on his breastplate, he had within here a pouch of 12 stones signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. So whatever happens to the high priest happens to Israel. So literally, the high priest, when he walked in before God, he was carrying Israel on his shoulders. And he was bringing Israel to the heart of God. And so his righteousness became Israel's righteousness. The high priest's righteousness is now Israel's. Now what's fascinating is you get to Hebrews, and and Hebrews is an incredible book because the writer is using all the imagery and the literary work of the tabernacle. And after many, many chapters of explaining the tabernacle. So if we really want to know what the tabernacle is all about, go to Hebrews. But at the end of that, he ends up saying, okay, and it's great. He says, now to the point. All these chapters of what I've been talking about the tabernacle. Here's the point, he says. What we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. We have that kind of high priest. The high priest that carries you. 
the high priest that with compassion has you closest to his heart, always. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God of majesty in heaven, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above all the heavens. Now, don't miss that. He's the high priest. He represents you and me. You're holy. You're innocent. You're unstained. You're exalted above all the heavens. And he entered once for all into the holy places, but he didn't have to by the blood of goats and calves. He entered by his own blood, securing an eternal redemption, end quote. Here's what's absolutely astounding. Jesus did not wear holy clothes. He is holy. He is the greatest potency of holiness that ever walked this earth. And he was so for you and me. He is holiness himself. And this is also phenomenal. Jesus didn't identify with the holy people, the good people in the world. He didn't identify with, you know, the people that were in the inner circle or the next circle or the next circle. The Bible says Jesus went outside the camp. He went to the most unholy place on the planet and he identified with the people there. So much so that he was driven out of the promised land. He was driven out of the presence of God. God's holiness was unleashed on him. And he died a death worse than a Canaanite. Why? To make you holy. To take the stain away. to make you righteous. So what do you not wear to church? I mean, what do, we, what do we not wear? Well, here's what you don't wear to church. Do not wear your own righteousness to church. Do not wear your own goodness. Do not wear your own worthiness. Do not wear your self-effort. What do you wear? the righteousness of another, the holiness of another, the beauty of another, the approvability and acceptability of another, the one who is the great high priest, the one that didn't go into the copy on earth, the one that went to the original in heaven and stood before the most potent, holy concentration on the universe and declares you holy for you. So, impossible holiness makes you tremble, doesn't it? But impossible grace makes you trust. And there it is. A trembling trust. Because of impossible holiness and impossible grace. 
Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come into your presence, uh, into uh, being in a presence with you in the Holy of Holies, uh, 